Hello and welcome to Cat Out of the Bag. I'm Cat Hennessy, and in this podcast, nothing is off limits. Hello, Queenies, and welcome back to another week of Cats Out of the Bag. I am back with the most fabulous Gio Moriarty. We are going to be diving into all things fashion, starting a business, living in Bali, all the fun questions you guys have been asking me. So we're going to tell you tips, tricks, everything you want to know. Um, so let's bring in Gio. <laughs> Gio. Hello. <laughs> Gio, thank you so much for coming back. I loved having you on last week and just, you know, chatting to you about what it's like in Bali right now and, you know, how it's changed since I've lived there because it has been a few years and I just, you know, feel like we have so much more to go into, um, you know, with your brand, with just everything. Oh, so, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so I guess like you know, what, what's your background in fashion that, you know, got you into the industry? Um, so I don't think my background got me into my industry at all, but here's my background. Um, (laughs) so I did a year at technical college, like TAFE in Queensland and did pattern making, sewing, very practical stuff. And my brain is probably less practical and more theoretical and design focused. So then I did a degree at QUT, creative industries, majoring in fashion, um, which was a bit of a waste of time in my opinion. Am I allowed to say that? I just no, think it's no, really. No, I study and look where I am. Absolutely, yeah. I think you get this piece of paper and that actually does mean something, but I think more it means that you can commit to something for three years or however many years your degree is and get through it. So it shows commitment more than anything. But I think especially in fashion design, that degree didn't teach me anything about mm. fashion. I feel like getting into the industry, it's like so much more valuable, what I've learned. But you do need a degree a lot of the time. You're not even, unless you've done a bazillion internships, it's like the baseline to have a degree. So I, but then again, I'm, I didn't really have a corporate fashion career. So I wanted to go to London and do this fashion internship. That was my plan. But then I got this marketing and PR job for, you know, working for the man for, I think I only lasted a year and a half, miserable AF. And then I actually interviewed my friend, CJ Hendry, who's this amazing artist who lives in New York now, but I interviewed her her. for uni and she cried in the interview because she was so passionate and like overcome. And she was like, I just love what I do so much. And I'm, it's so surreal that I get to draw and paint every day. So I went home, quit uni, and then I think I made the order for my first fashion brand like the next day. Amazing. And I just had that instinctual gut feeling that what the product that I had found was good. Um, and what was it? So it was all linen stuff, linen dresses and blouses made in Ukraine. So I just what wore- about, didn't you do a bracelet oh, thing? So the very first thing that happened long before that, which made me think, oh, yeah, e-coms, I could do this was um a friendship bracelet business. But after that, I did all this, these Thailand imported Hmong, you know, H-M-O-N-G, like hill tribes things. Anyway, these friendship bracelets I bought from Etsy and I put um industrial studs on them, very like 2007 or whatever it was. And they sold like freaking hotcakes from a Facebook page. <laughs> I couldn't believe it really. I was like, geez, these are 40 bucks each. Anyway, sold a few bunches and ended up making a bit of a 
pile of cash, went to Vegas and Coachella a whole decade ago. Wow. Um, and so that was my first foray and it came very naturally. It was like before Instagram. So I'd set up my shitty camera with the self timer and put like, what did they call it? Happy stacks or arm candy, not arm candy. Uh, like arm stacks? Bracelet I think the girls from Cybo Skirt co- say they coined the term. Um, frick, I can't remember. Anyway, creating these kind of fluke images, you know, when you're just in the zone, you're not even trying too hard and things just all come together. Then I ended up doing Thailand stuff. Anyway, flash forward three years, doing it again with the Ukraine thing. Um, so I'd work pick things off the rack and then just swap sleeves, swap embroidery, send them digital images of embroidery and they'd put that on. So it wasn't full production, which is what I needed because I couldn't, I wouldn't have known where to start back then. So did that, that did quite well. So again, I'm thinking, oh, this is easy. Everything just does really well because I think I hit the nail on the head with trends and aesthetics. Definitely. And... Then that went quite well, but it kind of hit this glass ceiling. And I remember thinking, right, when I'd moved to Bali with you, do I continue production in Bali? And I just didn't have the knowledge and I assumed I wouldn't be able to get anything finished to a really high quality in Bali. Embroidery was going to be a whole nother ball game, but I was like, no, you can't do it here. It won't work. I remember us having this conversation. Same. We're in a big maxi taxi going to something. And I was like, babe, because you were paying like ridiculous cost prices for this one For shipping because the US dollar rose like crazy against the Australian dollar and that changed my whole business. We had to sell a dress for like $900 to $1,200 because of how much it cost you to buy them. Yeah, but that was actually not – I feel like a business is never going to work unless it's priced correctly, which to me would mean that you're sitting in the right slice of market in accordance with your competitors. Totally. It's all about where you sit in relation to other people. So I was sitting in the right place and that was affirmed by the way women would be like buying three or four. Um, but it didn't mean I was making a lot of profit for those prices. Like a blouse is 400 Aussie bucks. Sold a ton, but yeah, I wasn't my business skills and God, bookkeeping was not happening. So I didn't even realize, um, because it wasn't run like a business. So I'd, if I made 10 grand in sales in a day, that was not the regular day thing, but sometimes it did happen. I'd just be like, cool, I'm going to shopping. You know, now it'd be like, right, well, 20% goes to that. That's got to be paid. That's got to be paid. That was, it wasn't even fun though. It was kind of stressful because the money would go up and down so much. Yeah. No stability. God, things have changed a lot. And what do you think, like, you know, I was having that conversation about like moving your production here and you thought that it wasn't possible. Like, what do you think, you know, Oh, I think it's there? totally ridiculous. There's amazing tailors here. And what do we do now for Chin Chin? All French seams, there's not an overlocked edge in sight. It's beautifully done. Like they're so quick at hand sewing if they want to hand finish a little detail. It's like I'm a stickler on the quality Um, and I'm totally 100% sure that, yeah, you can get high quality even with silk, which is a niche fabric for sewing here. Not everybody does it. I managed to find a top like master silk sewer house. Great. Yeah. And it still had its challenges. So they're a lot slower when they sew silk, but I think 
the sky's the limit. Yeah. You can absolutely do it. If I could do silk printing and silk sewing here, then why not? Yeah, because they're masters at suiting and Mm. all that side of things as well. And what about like what do you think made you step away from your like linen brand and start Chin Chin? Like what gave you the idea? What made you want to start it? Um, well, there are a few things in between the linen brand before I got to Chin Chin, but Chin Chin took a really long time to set up because I had no idea what to do with prints. So I had a girl helping me organize all the prints and we even bit off way more than we could chew for the first season. And we did placement print, which means you don't cut off the roll of the print. You choose what slice of the print goes on each pattern piece. And then you have to allocate that for like the differences in patterns from small, medium, large. It's really technical and really time consuming. So we had someone to help. And even she, when we wanted to do our second round was like, I don't think I want to do this again. It was too hard. Yeah. Um, so I said, okay, right, I'm going to do it. And then we ended up doing it. And I'm so glad because I hate that feeling where you feel like you don't know how to do everything mm. in inside your business. And it's kind of scary. It's like, what if that person that knows how to do it leaves? Totally. Um, so we took a little break from the placement print and got to learn how prints work way more and became way more smart with the scale of the print. Cool. And um, not making the print have any weird things. So imagine if you had like a big square block coming out where you crotch it. Well, that's not good. No one wants that. Thing. So we're just trying to avoid that. So everything looks pleasant on the eye no matter where it sits. That's good. Yeah. Well, and and what about like what do you think your first three steps to start your business were? Like what for someone wanting to start something, what would be like three tips you'd give them? Hmm. Um, number one would be a question. Are you ready for 12-hour days and to probably give up a lot in your life to make this work? Um, cause I think a lot of people are so enthused in the beginning, invest quite a bit in it and then it drops off. Cause they're like, Oh, actually, this is not just some little fluffy thing. Um, secondly, do you have that feeling in your stomach that like instinctual compass that's just leading you back to this that you're like, no, I think this is a really good idea. And you probably simmer on it for a few months and it's still there. And that, will lead you to something good. So obviously there's a thread of it having to be authentic because you're excited about it. Um, and thirdly, um, prioritize the things that need to come first before you do all the other things. So I've watched a lot of people set up their business and they do the easy or exciting things first. And I'm like, hang on, dude, you don't have any products yet. Like, mm. Why don't you explore the important things first, like production, sampling, fabric, see if it's really what you want to do before you bother buying the domain, doing the logo. Although, God, do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. But I just see, think- I did that with Hennessy and I didn't nail my product for my first drop. Like I went quickly with like getting the Instagram, doing the photo shoot, yeah, like that's the designing easy the range. And like I got the whole range together and then like mm. it wasn't like it was tarnishing too quickly and I was having all these issues ah. and I was panicking and then I was trying to find a new supplier because I needed new stock and it was selling but out. And That's to be expected. I'd also say to people who are going to launch a business- don't worry. It's your first season. You don't have to be Michelangelo 
you know what happens as soon as you launch your first season, you have to do it again and again and again and again. So you have infinite number of chances to improve and get better and have another chance. Not only another chance, you're expected to make it better and more amazing. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't have the heart to say to some people, who gives a fuck about your launch? Hardly anyone will even see it. I I do (laughs) think though, like I do regret not spending more time to like, get that perfect quality that I was really, really happy yes. with. And I think that I think that I probably would have like lost customers in the beginning mm. because with jewellery it's so like, you know, or if, if I buy a pair of pants from an expensive brand and they break on me or, you know, chances are I probably won't go back there. So I think like making sure you're happy with your quality and stuff is really, really important. Me too. And that is what will make your business go further if you are a stickler for quality. So that would be one of my pieces of of advice, be a stickler for quality. But when I said about the Michelangelo thing, I'm like, you got to have a, it's got to stop somewhere, you know, until it's like ready. Um, yeah, you can't be too pedantic with it or you'll never fucking get there. But, like, you know, make some samples, wear them a little bit, give them to your friends to test, like, you know, do a few things to kind of make sure it's, like, you know, get some feedback, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I would give Gio a ring and go, hey, is this, like, how long did it last? And she'd go, oh, I washed my hands with this one and it's gone already or I didn't with this and it's still good. So it's like, you know, give it to your friends, get that honest feedback because that's how you're going to learn and improve and grow, I feel. Like I fit some clothing on you. Yeah. Because you are like a fit model size that I don't have many friends of. And well, I'm, a, I'm a size The bus 12. size was so yeah. good to be able to fit everything on and just see how it sat. Yeah, I'm a really size good. 12 through and through on my tatas and – yeah, to have if if you're only fitting size six and size eight bikinis, how are you going to know what? Or even I fit on e cut boobs, and but not like it's just every single body is different and it's invaluable on all different body shapes. Yeah, but it's not always six and eight fitting. No, but I don't often do fittings where we pay people to come in and spend an hour and try everything on. And the few times I've done it with friends, I'm like, wow, this is just so good. Like yeah. I get so much info. Totally, totally. I guess you got to find the right person and make sure they fit the, like they're, you know, a solid size eight yes. and, you know, and like their bust yep. hips, all of that. So, yeah. Even for their region and their country because the US fits so different to AU as mm-hmm. well. Totally, totally. And um, what do you think like, the most important and essential things people should consider when they are starting a label just to ensure success. Obviously we just said the quality. Yeah, I feel like we did cover that yeah. in the previous. Is there anything bit. else? Um, I would say have a really um specific idea of what your aesthetic and vibe will be. I don't think you want to appeal to everybody. If you're not alienating certain people that is a bit of an alarm bell for me. I think um, you want to do what you do so well, catering to your customer. Mm, so true. You can't please everyone ever. No, and you just um, specialise, 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 I think is important. You're not going to be a supermarket of clothes. Leave that to ASOS or something. Yeah, you're, you've got to, Your niche has just got to be nailed and then that leads into knowing who your customer is. And I used to hear this time and time again and not really grasp it. And we've only just fully grasped who our customer is recently. And how did you do that? Didn't you stalk? Absolutely. I looked people up, 
looked at their Instagrams. I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. You can just get so much info. And obviously now we design for our customer, but it's not purely like the chance thing. Who's attracted to you? They're responding to what we're putting out there. So you grow a tribe and then you just get those little specifics and even being able to visualize who our customer is in our head and see their lifestyle. That was probably the most interesting thing on Instagram. Like I literally say in meetings, I'm like, no, our girl, remember that photo in this dress? Can you imagine her wearing those pants? I can't. It's not glam enough. It's not this. And we have keywords. And and what about like, like who, who would you say your customer is? Well, we would call her like the chin chin girl. She's a fashion fanatic. She's not into practicality. She's not shopping for practicality. She wants beautiful things, glamour. Glamour is important. Um, so she styles looks. She thinks about what she's wearing head to toe, all the accessories. She'd plan looks for her trips. She goes on vacays. She does vacay shopping. So I think we design with vacation capsule wardrobes in mind and like outfitting. So you have your swim look, you go to the pool. Then what do you put on after? Or how can we take you from as cliche as it sounds, the beach to the bar day to night? So it's like, so true. Yeah. So it's not just like swim. It could be a total, um, evening occasion outfit and then your loungewear and then your cover ups with the swim. So it's pretty fun designing our range plans. Yeah. Lots of different fabrics and, um, if you imagine a story, you know, morning till night. What's our girl doing? Yeah, I love it. I feel like you've just evolved the brand so much more and more over the past few years and it, it's fucking epic, well, like the quality. Oh, oh so I'm so amazing. glad you think that. Yeah. Because I always imagine someone opening the package and some pieces I'm like, I 100 million percent know that they're going to be like, oh, yeah, this is nice. Like this is top notch. And other things I'm like, you know, that fabric just doesn't give you that awesome feeling. Mm. Still, obviously, it reaches a bar where I'm like, yes, we're doing that. And often we're two seasons ahead. So now I'm designing the second season that is not online yet. So you've already moved on. You just got to roll with, I can't take that other thing off the website now, but we're just getting better very quickly. Yeah, which is amazing. And that's what you want to do. And look, so you're like, what um, online stores and stuff are you stocked on now? So now we're stocked on Revolve, Shopbop, Motor Operandi, which actually Motor picked us up in our first season, which was pretty special because I think they've only picked up Johanna Ortiz in the, in her first season as well. Um, and then we have a plethora of other beautiful boutiques all around the world, like Cyprus, all these exotic countries, which I love the thought of, like people wearing our clothes all over the world. Um, but that was, yeah, a bit of a triumph, especially getting Revolve. That felt really good. Yeah, they're fucking huge yeah, online brands. they are. Brands. They're really like, well known. It's fucking amazing. And, mm, and like, thanks. what would you, what tips would you give to someone who's like starting a brand and they're wanting to, you know, get onto a Net-A-Porter or an Urban Outfitters even mm. or an ASOS? Like, it doesn't have to necessarily be high end, but what would be your tips for someone wanting to do that? I think what you're doing needs to have, um, it needs to be commercial, obviously. Um, I would just say do what you do really fucking well. And I think your website's so important, like your e-commerce images. They are the, the main tool that thousands of people will look at to choose whether they buy the product or not. So get those right, edit them right, style them right. 
And do you think that that's something that like motor operandi would like? I look think at? potentially, yeah. They um, did actually offer us really good feedback in the beginning on when we didn't know who we were as much. They'd be like, "What's that? That's weird." Like they didn't like some things. Really? Yeah, they didn't like some film photography we did with like light leaks. They were like. Why do the images have like big yellow blobs on them? Really? And I was like, they I love like them. Clear images to like yes. sell the garment. And I think crisp imagery is so important. But I know you want to to hear my opinion on like how like what's a more direct link to those stockers. But I think we um, they emailed us these stockers. So I think it was visibility was probably important. So it's a snowball effect too. Once you're on motor operandi or evolve, other buyers are going to trawl those websites for the brands that they stock. Mm, so so maybe um, my tip would actually be choose some smaller boutiques that are really beautiful and aligned with your aesthetic and philosophy to run with and then just kind of climb up. Yeah. And what about like if someone was going to go, what do they need to have ready? Like I know you'd need like a lookbook and yeah. like what. like So your lookbook would have the e-commerce images and a few campaign pics, but it would showcase all the product and it would have the name and the color and the code. And then you have your line sheet with all the nitty gritty. It's a bit of a less glamorous document, like ghost images of each product. That's how we do it. Um, with the style code and prices. So you'd have recommended retail and the wholesale price. Um, and ghost images are like on a mannequin where you like can't see the mannequin. It's like pretty yeah. much just looks like the garment on a body, but there's no body yep. kind of thing. Just a less fluffy way of showing the pieces. Yeah. And it does add a kind of high-end look to the website as well, just having them. Um, so that's what you need to provide and an order form. But now a lot of the time they just make their own anyway. But um yeah, it's great if you can talk to them on the phone, talk them through that or have a video that you can play to give a real idea of who you are, even just being able to have music. Mm. It's a little bit more engaging than looking at a lookbook. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think you are expected to have seasons per year. Yeah. So we do three a year and you're expected to be able to meet delivery windows. So there'll be a cancel date. If you don't get the product to them, they can cancel the whole order. Um, you're expected to know your shit about margin. So most of the big boys, they'll demand, let's say, a higher margin. So we give them a lower price than other smaller boutiques because, well, A, they're buying a lot more, but it's going to benefit our business quite a lot being featured on their website. And being aligned with them. But don't get me wrong, we're absolutely profitable, these orders being on their website. But um in the beginning, it was a little hard, like, because our cost price was so much higher because we didn't know what we we're doing as much. And we were using some crazily high, highly priced methods of printing. Well, even and, placement prints are mm, so much more expensive than just printing normally. Yes. So that's Well, we're going back into placement print. Yeah. Stat. But I think oh, it's time you? to level up. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it definitely does. It is great. And mm. I do love placement print. It's mm. just like- You've got to nail it and you've got to like take the time to do it. It's another challenge. And I guess like, you know, starting off, like what did you do? You know, did you save up money? Like did you get a loan? Like I know one of my girlfriends got a loan from the bank to start her label. Like what? how did you guys fund this? Because it's, I mean. It's pretty hard to get a loan from a bank in the beginning too for a venture. 
for us it would have been. Um, so I had money left over from when I ended my previous business. I was actually in kind of no man's land. I was like, right, well, this is the perfect time to use that. And my business partner had a loan. So we put our two funds together to start off, but we didn't start with much. Then we got a, a loan and we've just kept it going. I wouldn't call it bootstrapping for us, but in a way it is. It's been quite, um, gradual. What does that mean? Bootstrapping, you don't get a 200k investment to start your business. You start with what you've got. And yeah, I don't even know where the term comes from. I always just imagine tying up laces. You, you use what you get from the business. So say, Oh, cool. I made three grand this period of time. I'm going to, um, put $2,000 back into this shoot. Yeah. So you use the money you get instead yeah. of making probably a huge financial plan and getting funding. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I did with Hennessy too. Like mm. I used my savings and then I put what my earnings back into like a new mm. campaign, new stock, all of that. So that's what I did. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it has its benefits, but it also like has your struggles too because sometimes you can be held back from going on those like bigger things that yeah. could potentially push you forward. But And it- you do reach a point where you just need a bigger bump. Mm. And and just Um, something to kind of get you over that next level. mm, So we've had phase one, a bigger injection of cash. And I think we're going to potentially, well, not potentially, we're definitely going to put a beautiful investment deck together and put a lot of um, thought and geniusly crafted statistics and data in there. And I'm look for something like some new exciting avenues to expand the business. So I'm pretty excited about that. Fuck yeah, babe. Yeah, exciting. could open some doors for exciting things. And like what about, you know, let's get into the nitty-gritty of someone wanting to sure. start a business. Like how did you go about finding a supplier here? So I used my network, little tidbits of information that I found, and also Instagram and Facebook. Really? Yeah, look at Facebook forums. Just use any snippets of info that you get and investigate them. Look them up online, get samples made. Simple as that. I actually found one of my manufacturers through an Instagram hashtag. Really? Yeah, and it was you just see they're like clearly um haven't got any Instagram now, so they're just photographing their workshops and their work. And I think I spotted that they made a bikini for another brand that I knew. Really? And yeah, they're a great place to start. So I wouldn't call him them like super professional and polished, but that's not what we needed at the time. We needed someone we could go to locally that we could communicate with. Still, his quality was really good when we got what we wanted, but a lot of the time there were errors. So all the yeah. straps would be wrong. And that's kind of led me to phasing that supplier out. But in the beginning, it was great. I could even send him like, can you make two of these or can you make a custom order for this bus size with four centimeters more in length? It was so good. He just kind right. of whip anything up. That's awesome. Yes, but it was just the money that we lost in big orders. Like one time he just sent me double this certain top. So I've still got hundreds of these tops because good old, what's his name, sent me double. No. It's like you just, you got the order wrong. Like it's just <laughs> these errors. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, 
I'd say the best thing you could do if you're looking at starting something is obviously jumping on Google, looking into it, but actually booking a flight, even if it's a week or two weeks, coming over here and getting on the ground because you're going to be so much more beneficial being face-to-face and it's going to be a lot quicker because I know like the communication can be like a little bit slower as opposed to China, but I guess the Mm. benefit with Bali is you have lower minimums. So like you can order 20 pieces of a garment versus like, I mean, for me with Hennessy, I could order 10 necklaces, whereas China, I had to order 120. Me starting out, I couldn't commit to 120 of one necklace that I might sell five of. Like you just, you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen when you launch a brand. So, so many people start off in Bali because it's less risk in that way. Short lead times as well. Short lead times, small minimums. It's a really great place for a startup. And there's options for handholding if you need it in the beginning. So you can have a production manager or you can go with a production house that might have a Western front of house. Yeah. And then they'll walk you through it. Yeah. And they'll charge a premium for sure. Like way more than, like it's not sustainable long-term, but it it could be the only option if you're offshore and what are you going to do? Wait, wait to receive all these samples in the mail. Like ideally you'd have someone here that could try them on and offer feedback. Mm. It's all about communication. Yeah. If you can't communicate well, then it's doomed. Totally. But yeah, I think getting over here and like, even like, you know, you drive down the streets in Bali and there's like a little like random shop on the side of the road. And often a lot of the time, that's like where the supplier that they are, but then they have a factory out somewhere else. So like, don't discredit those random holes in the wall. Like sure, some might be a bit dodgy, but you should give them a go and see what, you know, make a few samples with a few different people. For me, I was really lucky because there's a like silversmith village in Bali. It's called Chaluk. And there's this one long, long street. Um, and I literally, took a car up there and I drove down this street and I stopped in every single fucking silversmith and I got quotes on like different pieces of jewellery and was like, how much could you um, do this one for? And like got them all to price it and stuff for me and then made samples. And so, you know, there's there's options here, but I think getting over here is really important. It would definitely accelerate things and give you way more peace of mind. You'd just be so much more abreast of everything that's going on Absolutely. and just having that human element. Absolutely. Mm. Knowing who, who you're working with as well. Also the workers will be more committed to you if you meet in person, without a doubt, you'll get a quicker result and probably more attention and attentive service. Totally. And, and like, I mean, like the production agent thing that I think there's like person, there's like hit and misses. I think there's positives and negatives. Like, Positive would be if you have the money to throw into it it, it, and you, let's say you don't have a whole lot of history in fashion and garment fittings and technician, all that kind of stuff. It could be really great to have someone with that experience to hold your hand through. Mm, But but obviously the negatives, which I have, um, I had the option to take on this woman and I was like, hang on, this is the worst idea ever when you have a business of a certain size. So a production manager would have the benefit of when they take you on as a client, being able to make your things with the production houses that they've um, had relationships that they've 
honed over years and years and years. So it's amazing. It's like, cool. I know exactly where I can make this for you, but you're ne- not going to get told where that is for the purpose of you not undercutting the production manager, but still. Yeah, they never. I hate not having out. control over everything, not being able to ask certain questions, and then being able to kind of embezzle any mistakes as the production house's mistake. You never know what's going on. Mm. It's yeah. not. It's exactly what you said. Great if you need that handhold in the beginning, but unless I'd, you want to hire someone in house full time doing that role, I don't think a big business could have a um, like outsourced production manager that takes a. Price per piece. Yeah, agree. I know like Sir the Label used to, there's a girl I know here who has a production agency and she used to do a bunch of stuff for Sir the Label um, back in the day. And like, I don't know if they still use her or not, but. Um, they wouldn't. No, I, I doubt they would. Chinaville now, yeah. yeah. I love hearing how people have grown and what they used to do and how they've progressed. Because yeah. Sir had a store here. It was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, but they. They closed it when the pandemic started, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they did. Have a, I'm sure they still do some stuff here, probably like a few, like who knows? I mean, we don't, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm sure they, they probably do do some stuff still. Mm, I have heard on the grapevine, don't know if this is true, um, that they do a really small amount here and it's the non-specialised stuff, like super basic linen here. Yeah. But why would they do linen here? I, d- I don't think that's true because linen's expensive here. Mm. They'd absolutely be doing that in China. And again, you pay what, six, $700 for a linen dress from Sir. So. Yeah. But still, why wouldn't they go with the most yeah. viable option? Yeah. Um, God, I'd love to sit down with Sir Gal. Yeah. That's I know. Sure. Such a good brand. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, so you obviously you went through your processes with tailors and stuff and now you have a factory. We do. Yeah. So like, tell me about that. Like, how did you even. So we have a factory with about 16 sewers and we have a manager and it's a really cute little space. It's in Dalung, um, super airy and just a good vibe. And that came about. So it is a, I wouldn't say a common thing, but it's a thing I used to hear about, like, oh, these girls have got their own factory or these people are selling their factory. And I'd be like, oh, Imagine having that. And I just saw it as the pinnacle of amazingness and success. And then an opportunity came up to take um, three sewers on that had been sewing together as a team for years and years and years. So I took them on and then we've grown the team. Cool. Um, and initially there was major appeal in taking those sewers on because they had a lot of skills and they were just going to be so reliable because they'd all worked together for a while. Um, and I didn't have any experience in like managing a team. So I've learned a lot obviously now with like our total team, including the office being at around 20. So there's a, a lot of people stuff, people skills that I've had to hone. And um, I didn't like it in the beginning. You have this like, blinkers on when it's just you thinking, no, no, I can do it all myself, which is ridiculous. It's just absolutely not doable. And the feeling of being in the office with my staff and us all just being super busy and getting stuff done is the best feeling in the whole world. And what about like, how did you even go about like finding Mm. the land for it? Like, did you have to build like what, how, what's the process? No, we leased our property. How long for? 
Um, there's a two year lease with the option to extend. So you That's always cool. want to have an option to extend in there at not a market rate. Cause where does this market rate come from? Usually it's just meant to be a, um, you reach an agreement with the landlord, but I hate the thought of investing into the grounds and then them kind of snatching it off you because they can get a higher price. Anyway, so it's two years and we do pay yearly. So that's commonplace in Bali. You pay yearly for your leases. But um, yeah, we'll need to upsize the space soon. Amazing. Mm. And do you think like, I know like a lot of people take out like 25-year leases and 10-year leases. Absolutely. Do you, do you think you'd look at doing something like that or do you think you kind of for the next few years you'll keep it the like two to two to five. Well, the concept of a 20 year lease would be, okay, even if we move in five years, I'm going to sublease that. Yeah. And I probably got a good rate. I don't want to incorporate that into what I need to do to run my business. No. Subleasing. That's not appealing to me. Um, even though it's really hard to find a place that's just leased yearly here. But um, I search high and low for that because it's important to me. I don't want to be bothering with the property side of things, but yeah, there's just so many benefits with having your own place and producing in-house. It's yeah. just really what do you changed think some everything. Of the biggest benefits to having it all in-house as opposed to going to a tailorer. Well, you have total control. I can go there, I can meet everybody, see everybody, see the space, how it's running. So I can ensure that the staff are happy and looked after. No one's bullying anyone. It's a good workplace. Um and also the quality. So you, these sewers are not making 5,000 different garments for different brands that have different tagging, different finishing, different hemming, all different um, standards for everything. So they know chin-chin inside out. They know how to do this certain pant French seam inside out. So the quality gets improved and they know exactly where the tagging is meant to be. And it's just like this little chin-chin family because that's all we're making, like even all the – packing systems and we've busted our balls for want of a better phrase to get this global like GS1 registered barcode system. Oh my God, barcoding. But I could have a little <laughs> party that we've finally got this barcode thing sorted and the factory now delivers everything fully barcoded and packed like one of those grown-up brands. I love it. That's so cool. It's actually so funny what becomes such a proud moment for you because it was so exciting when that happened. But yeah, complete control and higher quality. And of course the cost side of things, of course you have greater cost to take into consideration, but I think your bang for buck improves doing it in-house. Because are you not as opposed, like not as much paying per garment now, but because you're paying us, you just pay the salaries mm. and the fabric cost and then the fabrics, the, the garments kind of get sewn. Yes. So yeah. the worst thing that could happen for us is if we run out of jobs for the sewers to sew, that's not going to happen. So the reason why it's so effective for us is because we're at max capacity. Everybody's just spending all their time sewing. We're never like, oh, we don't have anything for you to sew. Right. Because okay. that's when it would become unprofitable. The profitability would just drop. But, um, yeah. Cool. And what about, like, for someone wanting to set up a business here legally mm-hmm. and get a factory, like, what would you advise for them to do? I think step one would be talk to a business advisor because there's a lot of gray area and a lot of misinformation about Bali. Don't go off the information you find on the Facebook groups because. A Bali business advisor? Yes. 
So and how would someone it's probably find someone one? in Jakarta, not Bali, because it's Indonesia business. There okay. would be different laws for Bali for some things, but um, we sourced an amazing business advisor in Jakarta. But there's a ton of them because there's a lot of expat business here. Obviously, mm-hmm. any question you have, they'll answer. There's different responses and methods and regulations needed for each different. Um, piece of the, of any, any industry. So if we didn't have our garment factory, we'd maybe need to think about different things, um, and different like certificates to allow us to do things. Whereas if we were doing all maybe pop-up stores or had a retail store, that would be different as well. Mm, so so it's it, all tailored to what you do. Okay, cool. So we so- have an Indonesian business set up and I have a proper visa now, which is like another woohoo moment. And, um, it means you don't have to leave, like, and you can just live your life here. Absolutely. And- yeah. So it's, um, oh, just cause this is my home too. I feel like it's so comforting having that visa. Yeah. Cause absolutely. everything's out in the open. And, um, if somebody did want to set up a legal company, so yeah, you, talk to the business advisor, find out the um, little details that would adhere to the exact business project that you have in mind. And then honestly, it really is just a matter of providing a lot of information and then you pay to get the licenses. Okay, cool. Mm. That's great. But it wouldn't be suitable for everybody. So there's also, um, I know a lot of businesses actually, if you just manufacture here and ship overseas, often that gets put under the sourcing category because you're just, it's not business in Bali, it's exporting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you could go into much more depth with okay. a business advisor. That's really great to know, though. So they, some, you could just Google it and find someone in Jakarta, I guess. Absolutely. Even some models here are setting up legal businesses and, um, yeah, social media managers. Cool. Friends of mine that have chosen to, even though it's not a necessarily – public job get the correct licenses that's great mm. it's something you want to you definitely want to do absolutely here. you can't be here and working illegally and no you can get deported yeah easily they yeah. do seek people out they turn up at places and yeah not cool no definitely yeah that was one thing I loved that I was all legal when I was absolutely, here and yeah. it, it made it just made me feel so much more comfortable as well yeah. like there is a big misconception though about working online and that being working my business advisor said, if you're sitting on a cafe at a cafe, sorry, sitting on a laptop at a cafe, you're not necessarily working because it's working means you're making money. So is the money going into an Indonesian bank account or are you making money on an Indonesian website? Well, probably not. So yeah. Right. Interesting. Mm. And like, yeah. So I guess like, what if, you know, what advice, is there any other advice if someone wanted to move here? Like, any any like tips or tricks for that to help them like an ease into like coming here legally and everything? Um, I would say you've just got to come here and try everything out. Live in all the different places that you are considering living because I often get asked for advice and I'm like, why take my word for it? You've just got to get your butt here mm. and see how it works out. But living here with the legal thing, I would also think come here before you set anything up and make sure it's absolutely where you want to go. Yeah, comfort, spend a month yeah. here, spend a few weeks and just suss out the island. Because that to me is like a uh, one of the last steps, the business setup. It's not the first. Yeah. 
Amazing. And then like, I know um, I probably should have asked this a little bit earlier because it's kind of sidetracking a little bit, but um, I know that like finding fabrics and hardware mm. to suit your business, like um, sometimes can be a little bit limited, limited here. Um, yes. How would, like, what would you suggest to someone if they're wanting to import fabric from China or something? So obviously we make our fabrics unique because we print, but if you're a brand that needs unique fabric to stand on its own, it's very hard to get an import license. I've heard on the grapevine only a few people have it for fabric in the whole of Bali. Um, but if you have a good relationship with your fabric supplier, they'll import for you if you import a really decent amount of rolls. So we're doing that for certain fabrics in upcoming collections. Um, and they'll gladly do it. You just have a, a rough kind of verbal agreement that you'll buy all the rolls within a certain period or you buy all the rolls out, outright. Yeah, right. I think that's changed over the last few years in Bali. I think that's kind of a new possibility that's happened. It used to be really hard when I worked here to get ah, stuff from really? China. Really expensive. Ah, well now, yeah, it's happening. I'm done it with, um, some swimwear fabric and I'm also doing it with, Oh, this fabric I'm really excited about, but that won't be coming out until like the end of this year. Yeah. And what about like, I know you get all your hardware and stuff from China. We do. So we have it all custom made by an awesome um, studio in China and they draw everything up on CAD. So we get like 3D CAD designs and we need to make sure that our metal is really high quality so that it can get wet, obviously. So they're very high tech in China and really good quality and really standardized. So everything we get is going to be the same. And we know if we order 5,000, we can get another 5,000 next week. Whereas in Bali, A, or Indonesia, they're not going to have 5,000 of, of a button or a little gold strap thing. And once we've bought it all, it's probably gone. Yeah. So we can't do it. We've got to have this like never ending supply and we get our logo embossed and it's yeah, really but it's fun. Those I love the details hardware. that like add value to the garment as well. Absolutely. Um, amazing. Well, I feel like that's all I had to go through with you. Awesome. I feel like that's so exciting. I think like Chin Chin's such a sick brand. Thank if you. you don't already follow it, um, do you want to read out oh, the... Oh, we didn't even say what... All the listeners might be like, well, what the hell does Chin Chin even look like? So a little disclaimer, it's 70s, psychedelic prints, bright colours, vacay vibes. Yeah, and it's C-I-N-C-I-N. So it looks like Sin Sin, but it's actually Chin Chin. You get a gold star if you call it Chin Chin, not yeah. Sin Sin. <laughs> yeah, and it means cheers in Italy. Is yeah, that right? Uh, I Googled it the other day. It's actually Parisian Italian, oh. apparently. But, yeah, we went to Italy, Louise, my co-founder and I, and we were very inspired about the Italy trip and the whole Italy vibe, so we called it Chin Chin. I love that. Yeah, and it is a toast to health, yeah. like a cheers, yeah. Love it. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much, babe. I love you so much. Thank and you. Love you too. This has been great. Thank you so much for coming My on. My pleasure. Hope, hope we've helped you guys and you've learned some things. And um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, definitely. Good luck to everybody thinking about starting a new business. Very yeah. exciting time. Yeah, and, like, you know, I think it comes down to, you know, if you have some niggle, a niggle in you or just yeah. something pushing you, like, give everything a go. Like you don't want to look back in five years and go, I wish I'd done that. Like take a risk, do it while you're young. Like if you're fucking 
30, if you're 25, if you're 21, like, you know, it, that you're young. You can mm-hmm. you can start now. Well, you're and young if you're 40 still, still do it. Exactly. Like, oh, what about 50? You're young when you're 50. Yeah, like you can make <laughs> mistakes and you can start again. But, like, I'd rather start a business and fail then never start anything and not know. And it's not failing. That's honestly the the building blocks to the business that hits the big time. No True. one, no one's first thing. Usually, that's not their ne- uh, golden goose egg. Well, Pip, Pip Edwards, who does yes. Pink Nation, for instance, like she they, did. Friend of mine, she was the accessories designer at Sass and Bide. She's she done did so general much. pants buying. Yeah, that's with right. The, with the co-founder of mm. Pink Nation, like, and now look at her brand. She's blowing up this multi multi million dollar company and you know it's possible and it, it I mean it depends what you want to do but I just think at the end of the day follow your dreams and back yourself and get the fuck out there and have some fun yeah <laughs> all right guys I love you so much have the most fabulous day and I will see you all next week bye Cats Out of the Bag is proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. Special shout out to Rode Microphones for powering this episode. 